Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 4th, 2014. This is episode 1294 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday, and like most Tuesdays, you have a standalone show. It's just me. Not a listener feedback show, not a call-in show. I pick a subject, I run with it for about an hour, try to give you some information, tell you what's going on in our lives, how uh, we're working for more sustainability, preparedness, and self-sufficiency in our lives. And, uh, you know, hopefully you get a good show out of it. Back in the day when I did this show in the car, this is how the show was four out of five days a week, I would say on average, uh, that we did a show just like this. So uh, those of you that remember those days, these, this is your day for a lot of you guys You tell me. This is the one you like the best because it reminds you of the show's beginning when there were no guests because I couldn't do it. There were no call-in shows. There were some feedback shows, but those were things I could do in the car. Anyway, before I uh, get into to the, today's show, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Survival Gear Bags. Survival Gear Bags was born right out of the TSP community. Kelly John Doe was a TSP forum member when there were like 100 people in the forum. His handle's Cart Pusher. You can look up his handle and see how long he's been in the forum. He was in the fulfillment business. He thought, I know some companies, I can do some group buys. Did some group buys for people in the forum. Thought, hey, I can make a business out of this. Today's Survival Gear Bags is a family-run business where Kelly, his wife, and his kids work. Uh, so having them as a sponsor was something that when I had a spot available, to tell you the truth, there were people in front of them in line. But I didn't have somebody else in line that built their business right out of this community, knew this community, and cared about this community. And he's got great gear and great bags to put them in. So Survival Gear Bags became our most recent addition as a sponsor. Check them out at survivalgearbags.com. Remember, they do do a discount for the member support brigade and free shipping on everything to everyone. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. You know, it's it's funny. We have the, the most recent and the first, right, the, the oldest sponsor today. Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. The people tried to be a sponsor when I wouldn't even take them because I didn't have enough set up to do it yet and wouldn't take anybody's money in good faith until I had built the show to at least a few thousand listeners and um, built the whole sponsorship program around them, and they've been with us now over five years. I have a beautiful plaque. I need to shoot a quick video on that so I can get it over to Vic. Beautiful plaque recognizing their fifth year. I have uh, some plaques to get, in, get on order for some other sponsors that have been with us that long. Think about this with our sponsors, not just Safecastle, but all of them. Five years for a podcast? How many radio shows? How many radio shows retain the same sponsor for five years? We're talking about loyalty and people that care about this audience and care about this show, support the show, and get a great return on doing so. That's what you have with Safe Castle Royal, and they support this show so much that Vic gives away his discount uh, club memberships, $49 a year, or $49 for life. He gives it to you for free. Pays for your first year of MSB. Uh, discount MSB vendor of the day, the, the, you know, feature one company a day that gives you a discount but it's not official sponsor because uh, there's over 40 of them now. I just added them yesterday, Infidel Body Armor. MSB members get 10% off body armor. If you're going to buy just a basic carrier and plates and stuff like that, then this discount will pay for your, your membership for one year. One guy already said on the, con, on the the blog he was going to buy two full kits and it would pay for his membership for over two years. That's a significant discount. It was hard to find a body armor company that was going to be straightforward and just give you guys a discount. Really happy to have found these guys, and the gear is amazing. It's very, very tough gear. 
Uh, there's a video that I put out yesterday when I announced it of one being shot to pieces by AKs, ARs, you name it, just constantly pounding this plate, 9 millimeter, 38, and at the end, they shoot it with a 338 Winchester, and it stops a 338 Winchester. That's impressive to me, and I'm glad to have them on board. On that note, good time to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. You can join the Member Support Brigade, and if you do that, uh, you'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Today I'm running a, a lifetime membership sale for the first 10 people that buy it. Um, it's 300 bucks, and uh, it's going pretty fast. I am probably going to end up with a few people sneaking in beyond the 10 that pay by check or money order because I have PayPal shut to cut off sales at 10, but if I don't catch it, Uh, when it happens, then I might get a few more mail-ins. And I'm doing something with Bitcoin, too. If you want to join with Bitcoin, I'll give you till Friday midnight uh, to join and guarantee you a position no matter how many sell because I'm trying to encourage Bitcoin. I'll do something else for with Bitcoin. I already promised to do one person on the blog. If I do something for one person in this audience, I'm pretty much willing to do it for anybody. If you are new to Bitcoin and you're setting up a Coinbase account or something like that, it may take you a week to be able to put money into your account. Because you have to verify your bank account, and generally banks won't let you do it the quick way. You have to do it the long way, where they make a couple deposits, you wait for it, you verify it. If you commit to it and you say, I'm just setting it up, and you email me personally, and you want to join during this sale with $300 in Bitcoin, I'll give you two weeks uh, to get that done. But I'm not doing that to raise funds. I'm doing that to encourage people to get involved with Bitcoin because it's a new important thing to me uh, to encourage the use of Bitcoin. I don't care if you hold money in it. In fact, I'm not saying you should hold money in it, not much anyway. I'm just saying that using it uh, brings a lot of value and helps us fight some of the battles that we talk about all the time. Anyway, so everybody else, you want to join the MSB, it's available as always, 18.3 cents an episode, 50 bucks a year. Or if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service or a first responder, like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, uh, I will give you a discount on that already great price. Just email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. And one or two sentences tell me about your service. With that, um, let's get into our history segment. It's episode 1294. So the year is 1294. And uh, the one of uh, three segments that Alex has for us today that I'm going to pick is called No One Kowtows to the Khan Anymore. Quote, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caravans measureless to man down to a sunless sea, end quote. Kublai Khan had not been paying much attention to his empire in recent years, as his string of failures will attest. Since the death of his wife and son, he's been spending more time indulging in alcohol and nursing his ailments than running the empire. Now his time has run out to that sunless sea, and he is no more. He was 79 years old, suffering from gout, alcoholism, and obesity. Kublai Khan will be succeeded by his grandson, Tamur Khan, but he won't be able to hold the empire together. This greatest empire will break into four parts. Um, Alex mentions that uh, gout was considered a rich man's disease, thought to be caused by good food and wine. In fact, it's a form of arthritis due to urate crystals in the blood that collect in the big toe, caused for painful swelling. Regardless of his rule, he uh, did unite China, even though parts of China will break away and then be brought back to heal the idea of the United China will remain. Um, my, my actual take on this is totally different. Um, this to me is a couple things. One, he was 79, so again, everybody died when they were like 12 is, is BS. Um, the truth is human life expectancy has not changed much over the years. Here's another well-known figure from history that shows that. 
this guy was in battles and sliced and infected and, oh, but he was rich. Well, yeah, but the rich people lived worse then than poor people live today in many places in our country anyway, uh, as far as safety, security, uh, food, and, and what have you. Um, so th there is that, which I always try to point out when we see somebody that lives in their 80s and 90s, you know, uh, close to a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, what have you. Um, but... The other thing that I see here is something I see going on in our government all the time. Why are you running an empire when you're 79 years old? Why are you running a government when you're 79 years old? Why are you in charge of the lives of people at 79? Now, I'm not putting down the elderly. I'm not. Um, but the reality is we have people in our Congress, like that crazy senator who, who passed away, unfortunately, for him and his family. But, you know, he sounded freaking like he had Alzheimer's on the Senate floor talking about... The Internet is a series of tubes that are going to fill up, and his staff sent out an Internet, and he didn't get it because all the other Internets were in the way. And, I mean, this that, that's an example of people that should no longer be in power. The reason the Khan's empire fell apart is many, but it sure didn't help that, you know, in his 70s, he was pretty much done with everything and tired and no longer really ambitious. Now, I didn't like the, 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 the ambition of the cons, you know, dancing on people's heads and crushing their bones and slaughtering whole cities. But there is something to be said for people that actually want to accomplish something, um, especially if they're going to be leaders. Now, it's true in our government, I kind of wish they would accomplish less. But maybe if they were trying to accomplish things that were actually positive for the country, like the repeal of, of, of oppressive law, uh, it would be beneficial. And maybe we need some young people if, if the political solution is going to work at all. Now, I personally don't think it's going to. I think the political solution is gone. I think that the only solution now is a human one. It, it's us doing it on our own without them. But I do think there's a lesson there in people who have power who no longer are hungry in any way for anything but more power. They're no longer hungry to do good works. They're no longer, and they're, they're comfortable. I mean, think about a 79 year old congressman today. What do they have to want for? All they do is walk around, be fed by lobbyists and freaking write more laws. There's none of that drive and desire left because people just become complacent in older age. And I know sometimes some older people pissed off at me, but you know, I'm in my forties. I'm still young. And I'll tell you, I don't have the drive and desire to make things happen the way I did when I was 25. And I don't expect that I'll have what's left in me now when I'm 65. And as most of you know, I'm pretty active and get a lot of things done. So if, 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 if time atrophies my drive and desire, it probably does as well for many others. And let's just face it, there are certain faculties that begin to break down. And if you're drinking and, and indulging in a lot of things, as you get older, those things happen a little bit more rapidly and a little bit more severe. And and it, it seems to me that we have these people that have been in office. Some of these people have been in office for 30 or 40 years. And even if you like your party, even though I don't care about your party, time for some of them to go home and bring some people in there new. And because we need experience in Congress. What experience do they have? Screwing us, taxing us, restricting us, passing laws, being being lobbied, knowing how to get votes done through backdoor deals. What, what, I think we have enough of that experience. But, again, for me, I'm out of politics at this point. It's in my rearview mirror, and I'm hammering the gas. But if you're going to stick behind, maybe there's a lesson in that one for you. And if you run a company, I think there's a point, too, where leadership in a company, it's time for 
one group to step aside and the next group of young go-getters to step up. That's not talking about putting people out to pasture or anything, but when you come to top leadership positions in companies, people that are willing to take risks are what build and create great companies and advance great companies. And you need that. You, what you really need is, a, is, a, is a, a combined spirit of the wisdom of the elderly with the aggression of the youth and the youth not being too held back in that aggression. Because if you look at it, all of the amazingly innovative companies that have been created in this country in the past 20 years, for by and large have been created by people in their 30s or younger. And a lot of them have gone on to create other companies with their found wealth, and those companies never have the magic of that first one. person I would give you as an example of that, Mark Cuban. Billionaire, created Broadcast.com. He's done a lot of great things, has a lot of success in his life, owns the Dallas Mavericks. No company has been as innovative and creative and had the magic the broadcast did. Why? Mark's not that young guy anymore. These senators that are 70 and 80 years old making laws about things they don't even understand, they're not the people they were when they were younger either. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is my take, even though it went long today. So what am I going to talk about today in the main topic? I want to talk about getting ready for spring. Now, right now, it's like in the 20s, uh, maybe 30s. It's in the 30s right now. Um, it was in the 20s this morning when I got up. It's like mid-30s now. Everything's not frozen anymore. It's going to be down, I think, in the teens tonight. Seems very cold. I just posted a picture of snow in Hawaii. They usually get dusting up on the mountain peaks every year in Hawaii, but this year they got enough snow that they were building snowmen, and it was on the ground for several days up in the mountains in Hawaii. Doesn't seem like spring's around the corner, but let me give you some numbers. Average loss frost date for me, March 15th. Today's February 4th. Weeks till planting, it's about six weeks. Six weeks where I should be putting tomatoes and peppers in the ground. Average time that you need your seeds to be ready to plant out is about six to eight weeks. It's now. It's right now for just starting plants alone. It's, it's right now. And it's difficult. We have a greenhouse set up, but we can only keep it heated so well. It's expensive to heat. It's not insulated. It's, it's, we just didn't get the time to build our permanent greenhouse this year. So we're out here with the pop-up greenhouse and it's fine when temperatures are like 29 to protect plants with a little bit of supplemental heat in it. When we get temperatures down to like 15 degrees, it's impossible to keep things from freezing up. So you're at this kind of limbo point right now where do I start these seeds? Cause they may not even survive in the greenhouse, but they're just seeds. So it's not like losing plants. So, you know, we'll, we'll see about that. But I guess some other things I'll talk about today, how to mitigate that, like starting them indoors in a sunny window and giving them another week before they're back out in the greenhouse. But you got to get them out there before, if you don't have enough light, before they start to get spindly on you and things like that. But um, so we're at that point right away already. I, what I want to start out, though, with, though, is this, this magical date that's in the Farmer's Almanac. It's so wonderful. It's your last frost date. It tells you when you can plant. It's so, it's great. You, 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 you look at this date and you say, you know what, maybe to be safe, if it's March, March 15th is my average last frost date, I'll plan on March 20th, I'll give it, a, you know, five days or 22nd, I'll give it a full calendar week. And you, you, on March 20th, you look at the calendar, the, the weather channel of the next 10 days and it says lows 42, 46, 44, 51, 40. And it's like, the lowest number you see for the next 10 days is 40 degrees. So you go outside and you're all happy. You get your tender young plants. You start hardening them off and you 
put them into your garden all nice and comfortable and you're happy because you got 10 days out from the 20th. That puts you into April 1st and there's no forecast for a frost. And either the forecast and those 10 days changes are like on the 12th day you look and it says 31 degrees and you're like, that's going to be a light frost. Throw some frost blankets on everything. It'll be fine. And then like two to three days before there, the temperature for the low says 26. And then you're in a pickle now. I mean, it's, it's hard to protect a lot. You know, a lot of the plants that we put out as annuals are hard to protect at that temperature. Big reason to move to a lot more perennials for sure. But the reason I bring that up is so that you don't get over stuck on that last frost date. Generally, we get a freeze that rolls in right around the last couple days of March or in the first week of April. It happens all the time. Last year, when it didn't happen, what did we get? We got a hailstorm that just beat the hell out of everything. So the reason I bring that up is I want the last frost date to light a fire under your butt to get your plants started, but I also want you to not be married to that date as being a magical day that'll work. The unicorns won't fly to your house, fart rainbows for you on that day and make it not frost. Unless you live somewhere where it just doesn't freeze and you're, you know, then you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. I just wanted to bring that up. But everything you said is kind of a real reason to start seeds indoors. And I'll tell you one of the best ways you can start your seeds is you see your seed flat. You put all your seeds in it. You keep it nice and moist. And then get a low temperature heating pad. Set it underneath your, your, uh, your seeds and, and keep it under there for about three days and almost all your annual seeds with that nice, warm, moist condition, will, will sprout very quickly for you. And as long as your greenhouse is safe for them, as soon as they sprout, they can go out there. Uh, there's another way you can kind of limp some extra time if you're having these severe frosts where your light freezes, your greenhouse are fine, but your hard freezes, some of your plants still can't make it in there. What you can do is then start setting your plants out during the day in your greenhouse and just bring them in at night. It's a pain in the butt, but generally speaking, it's worth doing. And if you think about a flat can easily be 96 plants, you know, if you have five flats, that's, that's almost 500 plants. So it's not a lot of work to do it just to get through those nights where you know it's going to be really, really low. That requires paying attention to your temperature. So that's something else to be thinking about right now. I want to talk about some of the things we're doing. I'll tell you a lot of what we're doing. Um, we released a member support brigade video last week and we have a new one that'll be out today. Those two show a lot of the stuff I'll be talking about. So if you're MSB, there's a video available on Vimeo that you can get the code for in your member support brigade area um, that, again, will be released today. It'll show you a lot of these things that we're going to be talking about today. Another reason to consider the MSB. It's another value add we do for members. Um, but this year we're actually working on starting some seeds for trees. Right now I have Pearl Acacia Pagoda and mimosa tree seeds all planted in these really cool tree-starting tube-like plants. I don't remember what they're called now, but they're like a long 8-inch deep white tube, and they have these little lines on the inside of them. So as your roots try to spiral, they get the edge, they hit that, that notch, and they go straight down. You don't get the roots circling. And they're in this rack, and each rack holds, I think, 98 of these little tree pots. And I've got two flats of those, so almost 200 trees. Uh, well, no, I've got one and a half-ish started. And Pearl Acacia, you know, I say Pearl Acacia, um, Mimosa, and Pagoda. And I've got a lot of other things we're going to be starting soon. I've got some seeds right now stratifying uh, from apples. And I'll talk about those in a second, how you do that. I've also got some seeds stratifying 
for Nanking Cherry, and we'll see how that does. Uh, a lot of these things I'll be buying plants for with our big planting move this year, but I, I want I have so much more space that will be planted over the years, and buying those initial plants is very expensive. So between trees uh, that are and bushes started from seed and being able to propagate with cuttings, we're hoping in the long term to be able to do a lot more with a lot less money. So a lot of this establishment this year, this big investment, is to the end of long-term propagation. I mean, another thing that I hope to be doing with all this is I'm, I am hoping to this year launch a permanent ethos farm with, with Joe as my farm steward. And there's honestly going to probably be an opportunity for two people to be live on the farm tenant farmers. It'll pay almost nothing, but you will have a place to live. So you might want to think about maybe that's something you want to dedicate a year of your life to. Um, with the intention that those people eventually will learn enough about farming to replicate that process. And we kind of have a whole plan for that. That's just kind of a throw. But I'm trying to do some things now to, to mitigate the cost of that. So, you know, long term, you're talking about a much bigger property with a permaethos farm, something in the neighborhood of 80 acres. And planting 80 acres into trees and bushes and shrubs would be very expensive. So if I can build a base here to produce, you know, a thousand cuttings a year into to growable cuttings that can be provided free of charge to the ethos farm, that's a big shot in the arm, and that helps protect investor money. I also want to do it for my community. I want anybody who comes to my property that says, boy, I'd like to have a bush like that for me to be able to walk over to a shade house or a greenhouse Pull out a little plot and go, here you go, go plant it. Here's how you plant it. Um, I think if we're going to really make permaculture take off, that people that want to do sizable properties cannot be expected to 100% rely on nurseries. When I start doing the math, I'm looking at probably $8,000 in trees and bushes and vines and shrubs that I'll plant this year with an understanding that I may lose as many as 20% of those. And that's hard to take in a first year. But we, we got to start somewhere, and I'm willing to make the investment. Um, but then I start thinking, well, this is a three-acre property, and I'm pretty much managing uh, an acre and a half to do that. So it could easily be doubled on my property loan. And what, what does that mean to a person who wants to do 20 acres? But the reality is if we all start doing this and we start establishing true full-on farms, and instead of holding tight on everything – We, we, we propagate at a, a greater distance. I think we can get a lot of really things, good things accomplished. And, you know, for those of you that maybe have never heard me talk about stuff like this before, you're new to the show or you've, you've been selecting different episodes from the past or whatever, understand that the reason I talk about this with survivalism is that my view is that my job for our community is to be like a fire marshal. So, and not Fire Marshal Bill, if you remember who that is, right? Fire Marshal Bill. I don't really like that actor anymore for some anti-gun comments, but he did some hysterical comedy in his time. Um, but I'm to be like a fire marshal. And what that means is, you know, I run a fire department. And if your house is on fire, then we're going to get in our trucks, and we're going to drive over there, and we're going to try to save your house. And that's part of survivalism. If the shit hits the fan... This is what you do to stay alive. This is what you do to not go bankrupt. So, you know, when it comes to the actual critical events, I'm worried about not just preventing you from being dead or locked up in a FEMA camp or whatever nonsense somebody comes up with. I am also worried about how do you not lose your home? But that's a critical situation. Or how if your house did catch on fire, 
you know, what can you do to save what's left, right? But my primary job as a fire marshal in a community, if I'm doing my job, is one of education and helping people understand this is how to not have your phone, your house catch on fire in the first place. And if you've done everything you can and your house still catches on fire, this is how to set things up so that it spreads slower and this is how to put it out and this is how you can help us help you and all the different stages between having no fire at all and mitigating a fire to full-on blaze that we have to put out for you. And when I talk about something like establishing ethos farms across the country, when I talk about establishing your own homesteads, growing your own food, spreading this food throughout your neighborhood, we're in this first stage, right? So there are going to be critical shifts in the future. There's going to be a transition forced on society. A lot of the things we've come to depend on will not be available to us, at least with the ease and the quantity and the cheapness that they are today. They're not going to be there. The middle, the middle class in this country is being eroded and systematically destroyed. And what it means to be upper middle class in 10 years won't mean anywhere near what it does today. And it don't mean today what it meant 10 years ago. And it sure doesn't mean today what it meant 20 years ago. To put it in perspective, when I first moved to Texas, the first job I got was packing boxes in a warehouse. And I made $5.90 an hour. That's, that's pretty low wage. Doesn't even, that's not even minimum wage today. Back then, I think the minimum wage was $5.15. It was hard, brutal work. Uh, 40 hours a week, no overtime. Very rarely did you get any overtime. If you did, it was, you know, like an hour here or there. And they always tried to screw you out of it by sending you home early if they got a, a low point the next day. They never wanted to pay it. And, uh, and you'd think I was pretty miserable. And I was with my condition in life. But you know what? At 5.90 an hour, I had an apartment with a buddy, two bedroom apartment. We split the rent. We split the electric bill. We had no cable. We had no internet. And neither one of us had a cell phone. We did have a phone at the house. And uh, we ate. We had food. Could pay for my insurance on my car. Didn't have a car payment. He was making, I think, eight thirty an hour. And he had a little truck, a little Ford truck with a payment on it, a couple hundred bucks a month. So he was able to make his truck payment on a little bit more money. We went out to bars, hung out, chased girls together. Um, I had gas to put in my car. I could go out a couple nights a week and have a beer or two uh, and, and try to meet some new people since I was new to the area. And I was always looking for a better job. But I actually was able to survive on about six bucks an hour. I got a raise when they took me full time in 90 days. I didn't stay much longer after that because I found a real job. But I got a raise to about $7.50 an hour. It wasn't a lot more money, but by that point, I was actually living with a girl. This was way before I met Dorothy. Now we had an apartment together, and I think she was making about twenty-eight thousand a year. So I was making like half of what she did—sixteen thousand, eighteen thousand a year. She was making twenty-eight, which you know together we were making less than fifty. Um, she had a car. I had a car. We lived pretty good. We had friends. We went out on weekends. I got a pager. That was back when pagers were a big deal. No cell phones yet. I mean. We were able to survive on that. Tell me you could do it today. With the level of absolute enjoyment and without scrounging a lot. 
I didn't scrounge. I didn't blow money like crazy or anything either, but I didn't scrounge. I, I think it would be almost impossible to live like that today, even inflation-adjusted income increases. So that's what it, – it, here's what you have to understand. Since that's happened, and since nothing's changing, and since all the things that have caused it are compounding, that's only going to become more true. And a wage that you can live on today, a pretty decent wage – won't do it for you in five years. It certainly won't do it for you in ten years. I remember the first year I did this show, talking about a wage of $40,000 a year being a, a pretty decent wage. This was in 2008. $40,000 a year isn't today what it was in 2008. That's only five and a half years. And tell me what's gotten better for the middle class, or what's gotten better for the future of the middle class. So all of these things about designing resiliency, into your backyard, spreading food throughout your neighborhood in the form of food that's real, honest, organically grown food, not USDA organic, organic meaning life-based, carbon-based food. That's so important to keeping the house from catching on fire in the first place, from keeping it from burning to the ground, or when they set it on fire, and sooner or later through their stupidity... And now I'm talking about the power elites and their greed. They're going to set it on fire. And when there's shortages, and there will be, and when people are hungry, and they will be, do you want your neighborhood to be a food desert, but you have a bunch of food stored in your basement? Or do you want the resiliency already built in? Do you want a nation to be like Cuba, when they experienced their own version of peak oil, which was the Soviet Union, went... Yeah, you're on your own. Goodbye. Right? And, and they had to transition an entire nation, which fortunately for them was a pretty small one, with a good growing climate. But they had to transition an entire nation immediately. Or do you want to get ahead of the curve? That's why we talk about this stuff. So let me tell you some of the other stuff that we're uh, we're, we're working on right now. Um, in our gardens that we built, the hugel beds that we built back in the spring last year, we planted those with annuals mostly last year because they weren't ready for perennials. The, it was very fresh cut, live oak, and it just wasn't really ready. And all we wanted to do was put a root base into the soil and start building life in the soil. Well, that was done. And uh, so we have a whole planting plan now, moving that all the trees and shrubs. They'll be intensively pruned, about you know as high as you could reach, Kind of a zone one, zone two approach. Uh, I think I have 34 trees in the design and about 25 shrubs and bushes. Plus there'll be herbs and stuff going into that. But to get ready for that, Joe went through. I had him chop and drop all the leftover annuals. There was tons of daikon in there that's now rotting in the ground. Um, and then put down a layer of really good top quality lava stand compost mix. Uh, and then remulch all the beds and all the uh, pathways. So that place looks beautiful now. We've got flags marked in it, and that will be part of the workshop that we'll do probably the first week of April. And I'll have more information coming about that soon, but let, I want to let you guys know this is going to be a big workshop. We're going to take as many people as we can handle. Um, it, it, I think it's going to be really, really in high demand. I think actually our attendance at the battery workshop was hampered by how many people are waiting to come to this. So when this thing comes out, if you want to come actually plant multiple forest gardens and food forests and see it done, it's going to go first to the MSB for a couple of days before it goes to everyone else. 
when you get your chance, don't don't dilly dally because this one I've heard from enough people I know it's going to sell out quick. And I'd love to see some new people here, and I'd love to see some old faces as well. That's kind of a tough call for me. But uh, anyway, we got that done. Well, the other thing we did is there's a lot of rock here, but we've realized that where we dug up the beds, we, we did pull some of the rock out. So it seems like in our spaces between the beds that, that allow the water to flow through the contours, um, we were able to get T-posts in the ground. So we put an arch in the first gate between the first two beds, Uh, about six feet wide at the bottom using a hog panel. And it looks really cool. And there's three more areas that we want to do that to as long as we can get them into the ground. That'll let us trellis things like grapes, passion fruit, uh, up over top of there. Uh, and when you try to do beans on a trellis like that, a lot of times that heat in the south on that metal is too hot for them. But, but grapes can really kind of handle that with no problem whatsoever because you end up with more of the woody vine Uh, taking the brunt of that stuff. And then eventually, they're leafy enough that they actually shade out the metal. Uh, so they, once they get established, they're, they're pretty resilient with that. So we have that going in. Uh, we just put in a new forest guard. Again, all, this is all stuff that's in the, the video that will be released today for MSB members. Um, but we put a new forest guard in. You've seen video of this little space before. It's about 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot triangular. And we put a micro hoogle bed in following the triangle and a little tip out the back of it. And that's got a hog panel fence on one side and a five-foot horse fence on the other. So we'll also trellis up out of that and plant into that. And it's got a four-in-one little dwarf apple in there. So we did that. We, we ended up doing that as a micro-hoogle with wood chips. We dug out a trench. We put the wood chips down. The neighbor's now giving us his horse's manure. So we put down a layer of horse manure on top of the wood chips, recovered it, and then built it up a good foot and a half, two feet off the ground using this high-quality mix we get from a materials company down the road, and then we just straw mulch that. So that little garden's coming on, and that'll produce grapes, and that'll produce apples. And these, and that's just a little space. I've got another area we're working on right now. I'm doing the design for that. In the video, I show you using little white landscaper flags. So in my head, I'm thinking gooseberry here, autumn olive there, uh rosemary plant here in the hot sun and by laying the flags out standing back and looking at it i think this is very helpful for you guys to be buying trees and bushes and vines some people can sit down with a blueprint and scale and just start drawing stuff in and they do a beautiful design and you go out and you plant it and it works perfectly those people have artistic skills and a visualization concept that i do not have I cannot do it. I can barely draw it when I'm looking at it and knocking it in. I am the worst designer in the world when it comes to using a pencil and paper and a scale ruler. I do just enough so that I have a record of what I want to do and I can figure out what I want to order or buy or go get. Because if I have the trees sitting in pots or whatever, I'll just lay them all out. But when you're going to buy you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of plants, you don't want to buy too many and not have a place for them. You don't want to buy too few and miss your planting windows. So these are important. So that's the tip I have for you guys is using flags or rocks or cones or I don't care what. Tennis balls, if you have a big bag of tennis balls around, like we keep a big bag for throwing for Max because he destroys about one a week. Whatever it is, to lay something out to visually sanity check your designs. So that second place there, we're going to have autumn olive and gooseberry and pear and peach Uh, an apple growing in that, plus a variety of small herbs, uh, especially medicinal herbs. We're going to do black cohosh in that bed. 
Uh, we're going to do feverfew, Roman chamomile, lemon balm as kind of a sprawling ground cover. So there's going to be a massive amount done with that. And I may get even a little cutesy in the one area that's going to get really beaten by the summer. I was thinking about rosemary. I may try lemongrass. Um, I've seen it done where it does freeze. Everything kind of goes back to the ground, but the roots survive and it comes back. You're not supposed to be able to do it. Sepp Holter's not supposed to be able to grow lemons in the Alps either. So I'm going to give that a try because if it doesn't work, what am I out? Some lemongrass seeds. Lemongrass is a great thing to be growing, though, and we'll see, we'll see what we can do with it. Down in the first place I talked about with the hugel beds, on the west end, there's two areas that are really just hit by the sun heavy, even in the winter. I'm going to rock those areas in when we do this, or we're going to plant two abica olives, actual olives, Spanish olives, like you make olive oil from and you get olives from, in those areas. Those are going to be our test. If we can make them work there, I know we can make them work somewhere else, but I'm only going to invest in two of them and see if they survive next winter. So we're getting a little bit edgy with some of this stuff, uh, but we got a lot of, you know, a lot going on. We're trying to maximize all the opportunities. We're trying to not be spoiled by the fact that we have three acres and start not letting really great opportunities go. So another opportunity we have revolves around our chicken coop. So over our chicken coop on the east wall, We now have an electrical outlet somewhere there or in the front of it. We want to put a round stock tank for the geese to swim in. Uh, and then we'll be able to run a pump in there, just a recirculating pump, not like the, the urban ponds I have. This will just keep the water going. That way we can throw some, some uh, goldfish in there. The geese don't end up getting all the goldfish. They, many of them survive, and that'll, that'll deal with any mosquito issues that we would have. But by having that pump there recirculating, the fish will stay alive, and... Uh, We, all we have to do is shut the pump off, hook a garden hose up to it, and all these little forest gardens around the chicken area, we can just water them when we add new water to and take some old water, skanky water, out of the, uh, the uh, goose pond. So we're watering, we're fertilizing, and we have to provide them that resource anyway, and that'll be a better system than what we're doing now where we're having to dump out these 50- and 15-gallon uh, tanks. So we'll still use those in other places that are a little more remote and a little less serviced in this spot. But in that spot, we'll start to be able to pump water around. And with that, we can pump water 100, 200 feet away out into our, our west pasture, which is like no man's land right now that we'll be, be figuring out our development plan for this year. So we're trying to tie things together now. Right in with that, on that, that east wall of the uh, chicken coop, you get a place that just gets hit with sun all, all midday, from midday back to, to, to morning. But as soon as that sun peaks and starts heading down in the west, it's shaded. It becomes one of the cooler spots. One of the plants I really want to grow is kiwi. Kiwi likes sun. It can handle some heat, but it can't handle that long baking afternoon heat. It's too much for it. If you live in Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, sticking it in the west where it can get that late day sun is fine. Texas, where you're talking temperatures in the hundreds for four or five months on the side of a wall, it'll bake the hell out of it, especially the non-fuzzy, you know, hardy kiwis, which I think are a better crop for a homesteader. So on that eastern wall, we're going to put some spacer blocks, paint them the same color as the coop, put lattice on that wall, build a hugel bed along it, and plant, among other things, kiwi into that and trellis it up that wall. So then we've got a wall of kiwi. Now, a kiwi vine will produce, on average, a hundred pounds of fruit a year from one wasted space. The other wall is baked in the afternoon sun. 
We're going to put passion fruit there. So passion fruit on one side, kiwi on the other side. We might even put some grape into that forest garden on that side as well, though we'll probably trellis it on the fence versus up the wall. So now that's all wasted space recaptured. right? So this is, this is all the stuff we're working on right now for this spring. The other thing we have is we have this fence. It's a five-foot high, very sturdy, relatively new, a lot of life ahead of it, horse fence. And the people that put it in before us rented a jackhammer, and they went down into the rock, and they pounded the posts in. And they used a little trick from what I can tell what was left behind. Sulfur, like you'd use for soil adjustment. If you pour sulfur on limestone, and you put metal against it, it almost welds to the rock. So this is a very sturdy fence. I think that's what they did. And he talked to the neighbor. Joe just found out he helped them do it, so I'll ask him if that's what they did. But based on some of what I've seen, I think that's exactly what, what happened here. So I've got this really sturdy fence. Well, what I'm going to start doing very soon is I'm just going to go to the very northern part of the property where that fence begins, and I'm going to start digging a trench about five feet wide, and it'll only be six inches deep, pull that dirt to the side, start throwing wood in there, and build hugel mounds that'll be about two and a half to three feet tall. All, just a straight line. I'm not worried about contour. I'm not worried about anything all the way along that fence. And what's beautiful about this is I can put in 10 feet this week. I can put in 10 feet next week. I can put in 5 feet the next week when I'm busy. I can put in another 10 feet. I can take my time. But by the end of the year, I'll have a hugel mound that runs from the front of my property to the back of my property. And for those of you that have been here, you know that's a long, long way. All along that fence, I can do grapevines. I can do trees in front of the grapevines. And I have no worries about shading out the grapes. Because the grapes, if I, put the, if I put the trees on the east side of the mound, wherever I want them, the grapes will still get all the western sun. Because as the trees canopy up, the western sun comes underneath them. So the grapes will get plenty of, of sunlight, and I can space my trees enough to actually give them some dappled shade, but have plenty of sun for my grapes. And what I'll probably do there is mostly muscadines. They make a great wine, and they're very, very hardy in our climate, and they're very easy to propagate. I mean, cut, stick it in the ground, and they grow. Now I can start spreading that to other people as well, uh, and to other parts of my property, and to other properties I want to support. And as we, we look at that, we have, you know, that's, those are the big things that we're doing right now. We're also kind of redoing a little bit of the design on the east pasture for just where the plantings are going to be in the swales. There's some areas where we think we got too aggressive with the density and other areas where we can get less dense. Um, and I'm rethinking my whole support species idea over there. So my original plan was like a 7 to 1 support ratio, kind of because Jeff Lawton talked me into it. Well, without knowing it, he's kind of talked me out of it. Um, the Dallas, Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth area is almost on the same latitude as Jordan, where the desert is. It's just not a desert. If you go west, you go back to desert. It's almost Jordan. Um, we get more rainfall. And uh, that's about it. We have a very, very similar climate to Jordan. Well, Jeff just released his video about what they've done in four years in Jordan. And it was a great video. But it led me back to a post when he did the initial consultation with his drawings. And what he has in there, in his drawings, is they're flat, straight swales. Not on contour, because the contour is the land is flat. And where it wasn't flat, they made it flat. They did this for a reason, basically to get the people that were running a conventional farm on board and make things straight. And because it was so damn flat anyway, it worked. And what they did, and we won't do this part here,
But they went in and they just leveled like, you know, several acres. Absolutely level flat with the bulldozers. And then they put a, a, a swale, they put swales in going long ways through the land with berms on both sides. So when these swales are flooded, and they flood this with surplus agricultural wastewater, the, the water actually seeps in both sides. So instead of a conventional swale where the water comes down grade, they're getting water from the vertical side of things. And they get that from rainfall as well. They have diverted some wadis and things like that as well into these swales. So that's like more like an irrigation ditch on contour than just a conventional downgrade swale. And then on the, on the sides of these things, they've planted a food forest for several layers out. And then in between each strip of food forest, they have normal crops, like annual crops. So that the, the food forest is sheltering and protecting the crops from wind and, 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 and sun. And it's building a lot of fertility. None of that really matters to me that much. It was the spacing that I saw. Instead of atrophying out the support trees and, and doing a full-on tropical forest, what Jeff did there is he spaced his trees at about 15 feet, his main trees. So you got a pomegranate, 15 you know, feet down the road, you got an apple. 15 feet from there, you got an apricot. 15 feet from there, you got a, a fig. And then in between each one, he planted lucena, that, because that's what the client would provide, but a support tree. That support tree is chopped and dropped, but it's not killed. It kind of sits there in the middle, just like the place up in Canada has a legume between every fruit tree. That's what I think we're going to change the ratio planting to over in our swales. Because I just can't see how to fit 500 freaking support trees in there without really aggressively chopping them, chopping, chopping, chopping. To build more biomass, I'm thinking of using a plant called moringa, which is not a nitrogen fixer, but it does accumulate a lot of biomass, and it's very beneficial for forage for your livestock, and it propagates easily from what they call kernels, which are seeds. It will winter kill every year. Uh, where Luceno will grow back, and some of the others, like Mimosa, won't even die back. It'll just keep growing. Um, Moringa will die. It will just die back in our climate. So I don't have to worry about it taking over. So what I may do is put that in as an additional support species, And now I'm getting really creative and I'm thinking, what would happen if I plant my trees and my support species into my swale berms, and because they're not as big as they would normally be, because I can only move so much dirt here, come out in front of my swale berms and build hoogles that mirror my swales, just, you know, three feet out would be where the, where the hoogle starts, comes up a couple feet and back down. Small, low hoogles fed by the infiltrating swale. And that's going to be my shrub layer. And that will massively increase the planting that we can do there. So that's another plan we have. We didn't really cover that in the video. Maybe I'll talk about that in next week's MSB Insider video. Uh, we also have a place over there where there's three live oaks that we cut down. And it makes like a bat wing shape. And we're going to turn that into a bat wing shaped hoogal. And the bat wing, the open end, faces south. So it's a it's heat trap. And on the back side of it will be a cool area. So we can do things like gooseberry and stuff in the back. And we're going to think about... Putting a little pond in there, creating a little reflection back into that bat wing, just a little stock tank pond, right? A little 50-gallon stock tank in there. We got water out there. It's easy to service it. If it's dirty, you just stick the hose in there and turn it on and run 50 gallons of water and overflow it into the system that's there to harvest it. But that little bit of water is bouncing light. Maybe we can pull citrus off in there. We'll see. Just a thought. So we have a lot going on. And if you start to think about this is all on three acres of property and we still have an acre that we barely touched, 
We were not even sure what to do with it because it's such a bad piece of land. I still have a strip that is over 400 feet long along the back of the property that I haven't figured out what to do because I want to make sure I don't impede vehicle access because it's one of the last places I can get large full-size vehicles through. But basically, I'm thinking about hoogling that whole back fence. Maybe a break in just a couple spots so that the vehicle can get around where the other, a couple other structures kind of put things at odds with putting a, a, a full-on hoogle through there. That would block my, my northern winds. But that's 500 feet of pure planting. And this is what you can do on three acres. So I really encourage you to think about what can you do on three-tenths of an acre. You, you might be shocked. How much the edge gives you. Remember, edge is where all this stuff happens. But really be thinking right now about, you know, that last frost, frost day for you. When is it? You know, when do you need to get your stuff in the ground? When do you just need to get your stuff started? You know, and, and the more stuff you start for yourself, the less money you'll spend on plants. Um, and this is a great time for planting, by the way. I mean, we're doing the trees in the first week of April because that's when we can. That's when we can do the workshop. And, From the people that have been here for different phases of this, for the Hoogles, for the, the urban design, um, for the, uh, the food forest swale mainframe, a lot of those folks really feel like they have a vested interest in this now. There's no way I'm, I'm doing this without making it possible for people to come here. Um, it's going to be an amazing event. Yeah, it helps me defer the cost, but honest to God... The, the, the smart thing for me to do would just be order everything right now because I can afford it and plant it and get it in the ground now. The main reason I tell you that is not so you're like, oh, Jack's a great guy. No, because I do get a, a financial offset by running an event. I do make some money on them. Not as much as people think, but I do make some money on them. The main reason I tell you that is so that if you want to get some of this bare root stuff planted, like bare root trees and all right now, you can plant that stuff. They're trees. They're, they, they overwinter. They all know how to do that. And that way they're sitting there and they're ready to go. And they're ready to break bud as early as possible in the year. And they'll be fine out there. They know what to do with themselves. So your bare root trees and your, your herbaceous roots, as long as your soil doesn't freeze. If you live up north where right now you go out with a shovel and you, it's like concrete because the ground freezes, yeah, you don't want to do that. But things like horseradish, things like comfrey, um, all throughout the south, that stuff can go on the ground right now. The traditional time for planting garlic is when? September. You can throw garlic in the ground right now. You can go down to the farmer's market, pick up a couple heads of garlic, and break open the cloves and toss them in the ground. Most of them will do just fine for you. Um, if you can get a hold of passion fruit root, your maypop root, that can go in the ground now. Uh, Apius Americana can go in the ground now. Uh, I wouldn't do it just yet, but there's actually no reason you couldn't go out and throw uh, cut pieces of uh, sunchoke, uh, Jerusalem artichoke tubers in the ground right now. Um, where we harvested ours, we just didn't harvest them all. We just left some in the ground, and we mulched over it, and they're they're down under their dormant right now, happy happy as a clam in mud probably, and they'll come up when they're ready. So there's a lot that you can be doing right now. Um, what this has driven home for me, though, this year with trying to get a lot of stuff started and thinking about our long-term plans is we have got to, this year, build a permanent structure insulated greenhouse. Um, it's, it's probably the best investment we can make because even though you could do it with a hoop house or you can do it with a high poly tunnel or something like that, the expense of heating that, or even if you do it with like a rocket mass heater or something, the, 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 the amount of material to heat something so poorly insulated is it, it, pretty expensive. So 
you have two you have two choices here as far as I'm concerned. Go below the ground with an earth sheltered greenhouse, or above ground you have to do an insulated tile greenhouse. Almost like a like a like a windowed room is more of a way to think of it. I wish the house was structured so I could do it off the house. Because it would face south and it would be perfect. There's really nothing on the the south side of our home that works for putting in like a solarium sunroom greenhouse. So we have to choose a different area. But we've got to get that done this year. I think it's one of the best investments that anybody can make. The, the reality is with polytunnels and, and even some of the flex tech stuff and, and things like that, the heat loss as soon as the sun is gone is almost instant. The, the 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 thin clear material and the basically being able if you could stand in it and look up and see the sky that heat just goes it just goes the second so if you're gonna do this with a polytunnel law you really need to put in things like movable insulation like you can get a book called movable insulation on Steve Harris's website uh, ush2.com and give you ideas for that where basically you have real heavy canvas insulation on rollers like curtains that can come down and, and insulate that all. The other thing you can do to mitigate the cost is build a greenhouse inside a greenhouse or a sheltered area inside a greenhouse, maybe just a, you know, a, like a canvas structure that you can pull down at night and heat only that area. That's much more affordable than heating, let's say, you know, a 12 by 16 full on greenhouse because a lot of your stuff, lettuces and broccolis and brassias and all, You know, unless you're talking about getting down to zero degrees, they're fine. They don't care. You keep the frost off them, and they're happy. Uh, but a lot of your other things, man, these low temperatures really tear them up. So that's that's kind of like my big thing that we're missing. We're also going to get our poly tanks in. Uh, as soon as it warms back up this week again, Joe will be out there building the next platform for another one of our 1,500-gallon poly tanks. We're putting a lot of effort into water this year uh, and increasing our water reserves. In our you know, fish pond system, we got about 1,000 gallons. Our tank's holding 1,500 gallons, so there's 2,500 gallons of water there. We'll put in the goose pond. That's another 300 gallons of water. Um, but these other tanks, so two more poly tanks, another 3,000 gallons. Uh, water is your lifeblood. We'll also probably put in some rain catchment over on the chicken coop and just throw a couple IBCs on that because it's a small roof, but you know maybe 600 gallons held in IBCs over there of water. That provides redundancy with water for the chickens. Uh, so we have a lot, a lot of plans that hopefully this gives you, like spurs your, your juices. And those of you that are looking for that homestead, and you're thinking, I need 20 acres, I need 30 acres, I need 40 acres, you know, start realizing, like, if I can do all this on three, and I'm sitting on an old rock reef, if you can get three or five acres... With good quality soils. Imagine what you can do. And even though it's cold right now, don't be asleep at the switch. Spring's coming. It'll be here like that. You know, I think we, we, we are less surprised by winter than we are by spring. Winter, you know it's coming. It's getting colder. It's getting colder. It's getting colder. And there's things to anticipate, like the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas and relatives visiting and all. And once that's over, you know it's going to get really cold after Christmas. And then there's not a lot happening this time of year. You know, if you, there's, there's Easter, spring break if you have kids, if you're, if you're Catholic, there's Lent. But, I mean, you don't really just have the whole sense of, like, impending spring, especially after, you know, six weeks of real winter where it's dark and the days are short, it's gloomy and it rains and it snows and it ices. Yeah, we got ice here two days ago. 
uh, again. So don't let that lull you into a false sense of man. It's just nowhere near spring yet. Spring's coming, folks. Get ready for it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.